Abraham Lincoln was president over probably one of the toughest times in the history of our country, right, during the Civil War. And it was, of course, the bloodiest war in uh, American history since all of the soldiers were American. What'd you have? You had southern states who wanted to secede from the Union over the issue of slavery, right? And specifically as it was expanding, or wanting to expand westward. The northern states didn't want that, southern states did. And Lincoln, who ran on you know, uh, anti-slavery uh, platform, when he was elected, the southern states seceded, and then the battles began. So pretty much all of his presidency was encompassed by the war. I mean, General Robert E. Lee, when he surrendered on April 9th in 1865, just five days later was when Lincoln was shot on April 14th, and he died on the 15th. However, just before the war ended, President Lincoln was being interviewed, and the reporter asked him, well, what are you going to do with those rebellious states when they come back to the Union? And Lincoln said, well, I will treat them as if they've never been away. So today we're going to be talking about grace, and that's what Lincoln planned to show the southern states as they returned to the Union. And while that's wonderful, what we're going to talk about today is something a little bit better. It's God's grace. We're starting a new sermon series where we're going to go through the Apostle Paul's letter to the Ephesian church. And this is going to be an 11-week series. It's going to run us right up to Thanksgiving. And Ephesians is a six-chapter letter, and so I would recommend it to read it as we go through it. Uh, we're going to take our time to go through it, of course, in 11 weeks, but um, I'd say read through it. And if you're interested in reading along with how I'm going, uh, if you've got the NIV and you see the headers in there, it's pretty much going to follow that. I think I diverge a little bit in chapter 5 because it's very long. Um, so... Uh, for the most part. So I'd, I'd recommend reading it. All right, so let's, let's dive in. We'll look at the first couple of verses, Ephesians 1, verses 1 and 2. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to God's holy people in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So the opening to this letter, it's pretty typical of other ancient letters during the time. Now, think about the way that we learned to address letters when we were kids. Also, for a young person here, a letter is like an analog email. <laughs> an email is a longer text, just in case you need that, too. Uh, anyway, but what, what would you do? You start with dear whoever, right? And then you put the body of your letter there, and then you would end it by saying something along the lines of, like, sincerely or love or blessings, and then you'd sign your name. It's not exactly how ancient letters were written. What they would do is they'd put all that stuff at the front. So they start with who they're from, like what we see here in Ephesians. First name that we see, first word is Paul. So that indicates that this letter is from Paul. And then we get to whom he's sending it to, and it's God's holy people in Ephesus. And so that means that the letter is being written to the Christians in the city of Ephesus. Really, it may have also been a regional thing as well. But let's give a little bit of background inf information about all of this, and we'll start with Paul. He describes himself here as an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. And we meet Paul for the first time in the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 7. And he's giving approval to the killing of the first Christian martyr, Stephen, because Paul was a Pharisee who 
specialized in persecuting the early church. There was one day, though, he's traveling to the city of Damascus, where he's intending to find more people who were following Jesus, and he was going to arrest them and imprison them. But on the way, on the road to Damascus, Paul had an encounter with the risen Christ. And after this encounter, he was on fire for Jesus and became a missionary to the Gentiles. Made three missionary journeys that were very important in taking the gospel message of Christ to the Gentile world, to the non-Jewish world. If you've got maps in the back of your Bible, you'll see a map probably of Paul's missionary journeys. Paul ended up writing quite a bit in the New Testament. He wrote 13 of the letters that are part of the New Testament. And this journey for him wasn't an easy road. He went through a lot. He was imprisoned multiple times. He was attacked. He was beaten. He was shipwrecked. And he had more happen to him as well. But that did not keep him from continuing his mission of taking the gospel to the nations. Tradition holds that Paul was killed sometime between A.D. 62 through 64, having been martyred in Rome. And it's during that time when he was in prison in Rome that it's believed that he wrote the letter of Ephesians. So it would have been later in his life. Ephesus was a city in Asia Minor, what is now modern-day Turkey. The city was a port city off the Aegean Sea, which is that like extension off the Mediterranean that's between Greece and Turkey. It's 200 miles wide and 400 miles long. You can kind of see Ephesus there on the map, uh, kind of in the middle to the part up there, right under where it says Asia um, on the map there. And so the Aegean Sea is the sea between Greece and Turkey. And so 200 miles wide, 400 miles long. On the southern end is the island of Crete. On the northern side, you get over to the Black Sea through a strait over there. Um, and there are a lot of islands. You can see that in, on the map. And one of those is Patmos, where the Apostle John was imprisoned later in his life. And all of this makes for a perfect traveling by boat, which is what Paul did on his missionary journeys, or a lot of uh, his travel would have been by boat. So off the Aegean was this little water inlet that would take you to a harbor where the city was. And that, that harbor really was a major commercial port. Now, unfortunately, the harbor today, this is a picture of that, the harbor today has silted up. We're going on a travel log today, by the way. <laughs> the uh, harbor today is silted up, and you can't directly access the Aegean from it anymore. Um, and apparently that was an issue even back in Paul's day. And one resource said that it seems remarkable that remarkable feats of engineering kept the harbors of Ephesus from silting up, and the harbor required constant dredging. There's still a lot of ruins in Ephesus today, and it gives us a chance to be able to see what kind of commerce and religion and, and really just what life would have been like for these uh, people during these times. The city's population during early Christianity is estimated to have been around 250,000 people. One of the biggest things in Ephesus was a temple that was dedicated to the Greek goddess Artemis, who was the goddess of wild animals and hunting. That is a rendition of the temple. Uh, there's not a lot of uh, ruins of the temple left because the stone got used for other things they found. Um, but uh, she was the patron deity. Artemis was the patron deity of Ephesus. And Artemis' temple is one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. 
The roof itself is 450 feet long, which is uh, one and a half football fields, and 220 feet wide, which would be like 75 yards. And it was supported by 120 columns. When people came into the city through the harbor, there's this wide road that led to the city. Along the road, there would have been storehouses, vendors, businesses. And at the end of the road was the great theater of Ephesus, which was an amphitheater that's built into the side of a mountain. And it could apparently seat an estimated 24,000 people. To give you some reference, Assembly Hall seats 17,222 So it's got more seating capacity than Assembly Hall. There's also a library, which the front is still visible. That's what it looks like. And, of course, there were public facilities. (laughs) Which apparently had water running under there to help move things. Um, (laughs) After you moved things. (laughs) Fresh water got delivered through an aqueduct system, which the Romans were famous for their aqueducts. And uh, there were clay pipes that actually ran water through the city as well. There's some pictures of some that are unearthed. And I don't know about you, but when I look at some of these things, like the things that people were able to do 2,000 years ago and even before that, like that blows my mind that they had pipes that ran fresh water to their homes and everything. Now, Paul had a history in Ephesus. He first arrived in the city after being in Corinth for a while, as described in Acts 18. He took Priscilla and Aquila with him and left, there, left them there to minister. A while later, Paul returns to the city, and he spent some more time. You can read about that in chapter 19 of Acts. But a riot eventually happens, because that seems to happen with Paul in some of the places that he goes to. Like, somebody gets, something gets churned up usually. But this time it was because there was a silversmith who made shrines to the goddess Artemis, and he was worried that this new way of Jesus uh, was losing him and other craftsmen some business. And they weren't real happy that Paul was going around saying that handmade gods aren't really gods. Uh, So what they did was... uh, a mob kind of formed, and they took two of Paul's traveling companions to the theater. And, and Paul wanted to go as well, probably to try and help the situation, which I'm not sure Paul would have helped the situation reading some of his things. But uh, other companions of his did not let him go for his safety, I think. And the, things eventually died down, but uh, and Paul left not long after this, although he did come back one more time to meet with the elders of the church for final farewell that you can see in Acts 20. Then they were grieved because he told them that, that they weren't going to see him again, like this would have been the last time that they would see him. Now, if you read through the end of eight, Acts 18 through 20, like you'll get an appreciation of his ministry in Ephesus. So, we got background information, got a little history in there. So let's get to the next part of the letter, verse 3. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. 
And you remember when you were younger and uh, you, you played a game or something in school and you had to pick teams. You know, how would we do that? Like for us, we would always, and I'm sure it's the same for many, but we'd always have two captains and then the two captains would pick the teams from a pool of the kids who wanted to play. And uh, for a lot of those kids who were waiting to be picked, I think that some, if not most of them, had the same thought on their mind. I don't care where I get picked. I just don't want to get picked last, right? I don't want to be that kid. And, uh, you know, now I, I usually didn't have to worry about this because I wasn't good enough to get picked first, but I also wasn't bad enough usually to get picked last. Uh, I'm not saying that as a boast. I'm just saying that as with most things in my life, I am average. So... <laughs> Um, but that didn't stop me from being worried about being picked last. Like, that was, a, that was still a worry. And, and, and I will say that, like, when captains usually got to that part where they picked the, the last people, it was just more of a resignation, right? It was just like, yeah, I guess I'll pick you. Um, now, what Paul's writing here is that God has chosen his people. But he's not reluctant in doing that. You know, and in fact... He chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. I hope that that would that'd be pretty exciting and, and, and would bring you comfort, too, that to know that God chose you. And this is God, so he knows all the options, right? And yet he still chose you or us. And it's not some impersonal choice either. The, the way that the grammar works in the Greek is that it indicates a personal interest from the subject to the object, God being the subject and his chosen people being the object. And he did it in him, and that's pointing us back to those first three verses where he is talking about uh, he chose us in connection with Christ Jesus. Now, verse 5 is where things get a little interesting because that is where it says that God predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus. Now, really quick, let's talk about the implications of what that means. In my Greek-English lexicon, the word for predestined means to decide upon beforehand or to predetermine. Now, you may have heard people talk about predestination, right, and what that means with regard to things like free will. The discussion is far too long to get into here, um, but I'll try and walk through how I try to understand that, and maybe that'll help you a bit. Um, so the first thing that we need to understand is that we really don't want to seek after God if we are left to our own devices, and the reason for that is because we have a sinful nature. Right? And that sinful nature does not want to do the things that God wants, doesn't really want to follow after God. God is the one who draws us closer to him. Jesus says this in John 6, 44. He says, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws them, and I will raise them up at the last day. And that still begs a lot of questions and a lot of discussion. I'll be honest, I do not have all the answers, or many answers, like I said, average you know, it's, and it's okay. I did have to write a paper on this in seminary, and my position was that God does move, you know, God does move things, and, and he knows uh, and predetermines, but what I, always, what I have said is that God moves everybody, really, to a point where they have to make a decision, 
whether or not it, they're going to follow Christ. And so you kind of have a both and here. You don't have to do an either or with, you know, whether God predestines things and you have free will. Because some people will take it too far one way and say, well, God's predestined everything, so why am I doing anything? Because then we become robots, right? But then you have people who do the free will side where it's just totally, well, it's all up to me. And it's like, well, then God's not really God if you go that way out. But there's a balance there. Um, and I feel like God moves people to the point where they make a decision for him. And then, but then they've got to make that decision on their own, right? Um, again, I don't know if I'm right on that. I got a pretty good grade on that paper, so. But I think that was more for the content, not or for the, the, the how I put it together, not necessarily for the actual argument. But um, it is a very complex subject. A lot of people just, you know, have thought about it, written about it, all of that. And what I would say is just, if you are interested in that, study it for yourself. Um, and, and I'll talk about it with you if you really want. Uh, and I'll, I'll study other things. Uh, J. Vernon McGee does have in his commentary on this, he does have a very good uh, outlook on it as well, I think. Uh, if you're interested in that, I've got, I've got that book upstairs. Um, what I really like is what Warren Wearsby wrote in his commentary. He said, in talking about this verse, he said, This is the wonderful doctrine of election, a doctrine that we cannot fully explain, but one we can fully enjoy. Don't try to explain away the mystery of grace. God did not choose us in ourselves. He chose us in Christ by grace. And so with that said, what is God choosing us for? In verse 5, Paul writes that God, in his love, predestines us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will. So God not only chose us, he adopts us as well. We need to look at this from the perspective of Roman law and practice for adoption um, because that's the, the city was under Roman rule when Paul was writing this. So a father in a Roman family would have absolute power over his family members, so absolute that he could take the life of a family member and it would not be considered murder. Now, before we move on, I want to say fathers in this room, that is not the way it is anymore, Brian. <laughs> I know that. <laughs> it is not how we do it. <laughs> you, you cannot have that anymore. <laughs> um, anyway, but the procedure for adoption had two steps. So the natural father would sell his son, or sell, yeah, his son as a slave three times to the adopter. So the adopter would release him two times with the child going back under control of the natural father. And then the third time, the child would be fully released from the natural father and would have, who would have no more authority over the child. The adopter then becomes the new father. And this was done so that the adopted son could basically like take the position of a natural son in that family and could continue the family line and everything. Now, Christians, we are adopted sons and daughters of God. So who is our former father? Who's our natural father? Satan. But now, as adopted sons and daughters of God, who never dies, we will be under his control, under his absolute authority for eternity. And this in itself is freedom. 
It's freedom from sin. It's freedom from Satan and his destructive ways. And as we've said, God has chosen this for us. It's in accordance with his pleasure and will. It is to the praise of his glorious grace that has been freely given to us in Christ. Speaking of Christ, let's look at what he taught, or how we, Paul talks about him here in verses 7 and 8. In him, Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. When I was a little, much younger, I loved to play with action figures, especially these figures that were called superpowers. They were based on DC comics. I had a lot of them, like Batman and Robin, the Joker, the Penguin, Lex Luthor, and, of course, Superman, much like this one. <laughs> he punches. <laughs> this is not the original that I had when I was a kid, but it is... Uh, it is the same same line and everything, so this is like almost a 40-year-old toy. So nobody play with it because <laughs> it might break. I don't know. Um, anyway, I like, so I like to collect some of the toys that I had when I was a kid because we didn't keep them. Um, and, and so I've been collecting some. And I found this really cool toy store up in Kokomo that has toys from when I was a kid. And now I want to buy the whole store, but I can't afford that. So I just little bit at a time. I'm, I'm getting some of my childhood back. <laughs> my dad was like, what are you doing? <laughs> it's nostalgia, man. Figure it out. Anyway, as part of the superpowers line, there was also a Clark Kent figure with Superman. But you could not buy that in the stores. You had to collect a certain number of coupons on uh, other figures, and then you would redeem those by mailing them in. And then you'd wait, right? Like, I did this. I, I got all the figures that I needed, and then I would wait for to get the Clark Kent. I mailed the thing off, waited, checked the mail every day, like even the next day after you mail it, even though you know it's not going to come. But, you know, but eventually you'd get to a point where it's like, it's never coming. They've lost it. I'm never going to get Clark Kent. But then one day, I remember going to the mailbox, and then seeing this little unassuming brown box about this big. <laughs> and inside was a Clark Kent figure. And it was awesome. Like, all that waiting, I got a Clark Kent figure. He could also punch for some reason. But, <laughs> um, but what you had to do is you had to earn enough coupons, and then you would redeem those to get the Clark Kent figure. Put him back. There it is. Paul tells the Ephesians that we have been redeemed, meaning that we have been bought and paid for. By whom? By Christ. He paid for us with his blood on the cross. In 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20, Paul writes that when he's talking about, he's, he's, he's writing, he's talking about fleeing from sexual immorality, but he writes this. He says, do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you? whom you've received from God. You're not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. In Christ, we have been redeemed. And so we are his. Not only that, but we've, we also have the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. 
We continue in verse 8 of Ephesians 1, where it says, With all wisdom and understanding, he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ, to be put into effect when the times reach their fulfillment, to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. The riches of God's grace gives us freedom, redemption, and forgiveness. He who has known you since before the creation of the world, who's known everything that you've done, both good and bad, chose you and then paid for you through the blood of Christ and has forgiven all of those sins, all those bad things that you've done. 1 Peter 2.24 says, He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. I love what Paul writes about the riches of God's grace. He doesn't just give his grace to his followers. He lavishes it on us. Dictionary says to lavish means to cover something thickly or liberally with. So like my bread with butter. I lavish my bread with butter. I'm going to make it to retirement age, I'll bet. (laughs) One year in youth group, though, we had a picture of this, and, and Austin helped me out with it. Um, it started by me taking a spray bottle and it was filled with water. And we were like, this is how sometimes we feel like God's grace is. You know, it's spritzing. So I spritzed Austin with some water. You know, it's like, it's like that. You know, it feels good for a little bit, but then it kind of wears off and we need a little bit more. But then we moved up to a pitcher, and it's like, well, you know, as you grow, you feel like it's more, but it's still a limited amount. And then we did a little small bucket. But then we did a five-gallon bucket and dumped it on Austin. And then I did it again. Because that's really what God's grace is like. It's, it's that. And Austin was a trooper. This, was, this happened in October in, uh, you know, 10 years ago, I think now, which is wild to think about. So he was a trooper. He was a little cold. We warmed up the water, but it didn't matter. Um, but it was, it was a great, great picture of it because it's not a little spray bottle of grace that God's giving us. It's a five-gallon bucket and more. Now, God has also made the mystery of his will known to us in Christ, and that will is to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. And when is this going to happen? Well, Paul writes in verse 10, it's going to be put into effect when the times reach their fulfillment. Well, that helps, right? So when is that? Scholars believe that this is going to be part of that, like, already not yet conversation where there is a present time, the present sense that they're talking about, where Christ has already come and inaugurated his kingdom on earth. But then there's going to be a future sense when Christ returns and is exalted. Most look toward that future messianic age where Christ reigns supreme in, in victory. That's when that times will reach their fulfillment. And then everything will be brought into unity. Everything in heaven and on earth will be brought into unity under Christ. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 11 and 12, as we continue, it says, In him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will in order that we who were the first to put our hope in Christ might be for the praise of his glory. So we come back to the idea where we were chosen. 
predestined according to God's plan. But here we find out why. It's so that we might be for the praise of his glory. Because none of this is about us. It's all about God and his glory. We have been chosen so that God will be glorified. Another way also to say that we were also chosen can be, it can be translated as we were made a heritage or an inheritance. As Wearsby writes, in Christ we are an inheritance. We are valuable to him. Think of the price that God paid to purchase us and to make us part of his inheritance. God the Son is the Father's love gift to us, and we are the Father's love gift to his Son. Read John 17 and note how many times Christ calls us those whom you have given me. Christ, or God has also given us an inheritance in Christ. First Peter 1 verses 3 and 4 say, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. And that inheritance is kept for you in heaven. Now, the last part of this passage today that we're going to look at is the third member of the Trinity, and that's the Holy Spirit. Verse 13 says, And you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. So we're moving from God's work to us to God's work in us. And many, many are going to hear the message of truth. Like many will hear the message of the gospel. Not as many, unfortunately, are going to actually believe. But when they do... They are marked with a seal. And what is that seal? It is the Holy Spirit, whom God promised his followers would come following his ascension into heaven. Paul describes the Spirit as a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the day of redemption. And what that indicates is possession, right? If you remember the movie Toy Story, when Andy would get new toys, what would he do with them? He'd, he'd mark them on the bottom of their foot. He'd write his name on them to say that these were Andy's toys. Right? They were his. That's really kind of what the seal of the Holy Spirit does for us. It's an indication that we are gods. But not, not that we are, that we are possessed, possession of God. <laughs> I, I don't want you to think that we are gods ourselves. That would be a terrible way to go. Anyway, um, but it's also a reminder that he has chosen us. Now, this whole passage that we've been looking at today was written to praise the Lord. Really, verses 3 through 10 are just one sentence in Greek, and it just keeps building on itself. But the whole point is to show Paul's reasoning for praising God. And, and that's really how we should respond when we read it. We read that God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing because he chose us from before the creation of the world. He loves us so much that he's adopted us into his family through Christ, in whom we have been redeemed through the abundant, lavish grace of the Lord, so that we are now sealed with the Holy Spirit, dwelling in us a deposit for our inheritance, eternal life in Christ. As followers of Jesus, we respond with praise and thanksgiving. And we're going to be looking at how Paul gives thanks next week. But if you're not a follower of Jesus, this, we wanted to invite you to follow him to be part of that loving relationship with him, to be able to say, I am his, 
He has chosen me. And in the riches of his grace, you can say I'm his and I am saved. And you know, we're just getting started with this letter. And I'm, I'm really excited about what's going to come as we keep going through it over the next few months. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, Lord, you, there's so much in here. It's in this opening 13 verses to this book. So much that we can glean, but the main thing is to know that, Lord, you love us. You chose us. You have known us from before, long before we were born. And that is so amazing, Lord. It's amazing to know that you you knew who we were going to be. You knew the good things. You knew the bad things. And yet you still chose us to be yours. To seal with the Holy Spirit. To show your ownership of us. But it's not it's not a bad ownership because you've given us freedom. Freedom from sin, freedom from Satan. And you've given us an inheritance that will never fade and never perish because it is stored in heaven. Lord, the only thing we can say for that is thank you. We lift our praises to you because of that and say thank you. Father, we come to the time in our service where we remember the sacrifice of your son on the cross as we take this time of communion. We take the bread that represents the body. We take the juice representing the blood. We remember what Christ paid for us. We thank you and we love you, Lord. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.